there's a revolution that has taken over our world. And no, I am not talking about the Islamic State. I'm not talking about a revolution that uses missiles and machine guns and those sort of weapons or any kind of weapon of mass destruction or so forth to take over the world. That's not the kind of revolution I'm talking about. The revolution I'm referring to has taken over our world through peaceful means, if you will. We've accepted this revolution with open arms, really, for the most part. We've accepted it. The world as a whole has, anyway. It's called the digital revolution. You heard of that? Digital revolution is, uh, according to Wikipedia, here's a, uh, the definition. I don't, I'm not a big fan of Wikipedia, but I'll go with this one. Here's what it says. The digital revolution, also called the third industrial revolution, is the change from analog, mechanical, and electronic technology to digital technology, which began anywhere from the late 1950s to the late 1970s with the adoption and proliferation of digital computers and digital record-keeping that continues to the present day, end quote. Now, why is this important? Why does this need to be addressed? Why addressed from a pulpit? <laughs> well, it's important because the digital revolution, whether you realize it or not, affects the way you see. It affects the way we hear, what we hear. It affects how we interact with each other in this world. It affects how you and I communicate with each other. Whether you realize it or not, especially those of you uh, who were born uh, particularly after 1970, you have grown up in this world and you don't know any other world. It's kind of like a fish, you know, a fish born in the water breathes through its gills in that water. That's the only world it knows. Some of you who are born, particularly those of you, if you were born before 1950 or 1960s, somewhere around there, it's, it's kind of like going from a world of breathing air to be being thrown in the water. The world has changed drastically. Uh, let me give you some examples of how this this world has changed and what and how this digital revolution affects us. For example, I don't know if you've heard of the virtual church, but there is such a thing online. And sadly, there are people who, uh, even, a, even a woman, might walk away from her local church and become a member of a virtual church. And the only thing that, that, that ties the virtual church together is a website. It exists. Have a look yourself. It's online. So you can go and have Lord's Supper with other virtual church members. It's weird, I know, but it's happening today. This digital revolution affects people who might sit in church, like this young man you'll see on the screen here. And, and there's people who come to church, they, they supposedly come to worship God, right, with God's people. And there's people who will sit there with their mobile phones and send and receive text messages even during the preaching of God's Word. You might go to a restaurant. Maybe you've seen a family like this one on the screen where each member is lost in their own digital world. And the father might be talking on his mobile phone. Mother might be using her smartphone to check Facebook. And the kids got their faces glued in their handheld gaming devices. Supposedly having good quality family time together when in reality 
it's not taking place. Or you might see some young man like this one here, immersed, just immersed in a video game, content to spend endless, endless hours staring at screens, just losing themselves in this virtual world instead of reality. Can't help but wonder how many people think a virtual world is more attractive than the real world. I know of guys even in their 40s and 50s, and they're, they sit there 12 hours a day sometimes. Some, some guys are even worse than that. And their mother brings them their food, and the only time they get up is to go use the toilet. They've lost reality. You might see students dedicating vast amount of times to social websites, for example, like Facebook, and all the while suspecting that they're missing out on the real world, face-to-face contact with real people, but yet they spend hours and hours on Facebook. There's a lot of people like that. So how are we to live in a digital world? Well, you can't run away from the digital technology. It, it is here to stay, I think. And frankly, I don't know if that's a good idea for us to run away from the digital technology. After all, you think about it, not all technology is bad, evil, harmful. A lot of it's useful. I even prepared this sermon with technology. <laughs> right? I do it all the time. And I love that technology where I, I've got my Bible software programs and so forth in front of me, and I can study God's Word using digital technology. It's very useful. I pray that it glorifies God. So I want us to think about this a little bit, and I want to invite you, invite you to join me. Think about what is life like after the digital explosion? Now we're going to explore some suggestions, look at some ideas of how Christians can live in a digital world for God's glory. And how we can live in a digital world, do it with character and virtue and integrity and honesty and wisdom. And then we're going to learn how we can respond to the changes in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. But let me start with this question. What are the different ways to respond to the digital world? There's at least three ways we can respond. Number one, some might be tempted to embrace the latest technology and do it enthusiastically and do it without thinking. Without really thinking. Uh, some would argue that cell phones and the video games and the computers and the Internet are just an inevitable part of our life. And some would suggest we just need to embrace all of these technologies, otherwise the church is going to become irrelevant, and what good are we in this world? But think about that. An unqualified embrace lacks discernment. Frankly, that would be unwise. God calls us to actually use our minds. He's given us our minds. He's created our minds. And we're to distinguish between what is good and evil. After all, look what Romans 12, verse 2 says. A command, by the way, which says, Do not be conformed to this world. An illustration I find helpful is, is, a, is like, to, to compare Romans 12, 2, is like a ship in the water. It's not bad for a ship to be in the water. It's doing what it's designed to do, right? 
and it can, it, you know, it can float on that water. It's in the water, floating on the water, doing its thing. But once the water gets in the ship, the ship sinks. Right? The problem is not the ship in the water that sinks it, right? It's the water in the ship that sinks the ship. God says we're not to be conformed to this world. Don't allow, in other words, don't allow the world to press you into its mold, its philosophies, its way of thinking. Problem is, we as Christians, sometimes we don't tend to think, well, okay, we just kind of accept all these technologies and we're not really thinking, we're not using discernment, we're not asking ourselves, should I do this? Should I not do this? Is this good? Is this bad? So, some might be tempted to embrace. Second possibility is for some Christians, it's just strict separation from all of these technologies. They don't, I don't know why they do, some just don't want to use their brains. Maybe they don't have discernment or whatever. And so some persons just withdraw from the world. They seek to keep themselves free from digital technology. They look at it as a defilement. It's unclean. So if I touch it, use it, I'm going to be defiled. And you know of, there are some really uh, very strict groups in New Zealand. They live in their communities, and uh, they, don't want, they don't want anybody in their, their little religious group using the Internet, They've got very limited uh, use of any technology, lest it defile them. Well, there is something to com- uh, to be commended about that approach, but realistically, uh, <laughs> well, it's not realistic. And digital technologies are just something that's an unavoidable part of our life today. And frankly, there's no biblical reason to utterly separate ourselves from the digital world. After all, think about it. The digital technology is not inherently evil. It's the application, really, of it that can become evil. And so, it can, and it must be used in ways that honor and glorify God. It's here to stay, so why not redeem it? Use it for God's honor and glory. Jesus said it this way in John 17, verse 14, Be in the world, just don't be of the world. Again, it's like the ship in the water. Jesus is saying, be the ship in the water. Do what I designed you to do. Just don't let the water in you. Otherwise, it will sink you. Well, the third proper response is discipline discernment. That's the third response, and I think it's the proper one. In in that particular approach, uh, we as Christians should look at the new technologies that come our way. We need to weigh them, evaluate them, educate ourselves about them, think deeply about them, consider the consequences or the potential consequences of it using discernment. So here's a conclusion I have. Being in the world but not of the world will mean that you and I commit ourselves to using technology in a Christ-honoring and radically different way than the world uses it. After all, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God. All. In fact, in, in that verse, it uses some mundane things as examples. Even your eating and drinking can be used in such a way to give the right opinion of God. Yeah, even the way you eat and drink can do that. 
And if it applies to eating and drinking, of course it can apply then to our use of technologies. So we need to use the Bible to help us discern technology, and that's why we need to start at the beginning here in Genesis chapter 1. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Yes, I know you're not going to find the internet or the World Wide Web or computers or Twitter or social media video games. You're not going to find any of that stuff here in the Garden of Eden, right? You're not going to find anybody digging up the Garden of Eden and putting ultra-fast broadband you know, under the tree of life. It's, it's not there. Now, it might be going through your neighborhood now, like mine, but it's not here. So some would say, well, what does this have to do with... You know, the digital world and technology, well, it has a lot. Just stay with me, okay? Certainly application and implications for us. So, in the first chapter of the Bible here, we're going to read that God created man in his own image. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see an allusion here to the Trinity. What's the Trinity doing? He's making man. The Trinity is making man in His image. And God gives dominion over that. He gives us dominion over that. Well, that, that shows a hierarchy. There are people today who worship creation instead of the Creator, Romans 1 says. We see that evidenced in many different ways. And so God, these words here tell us we've been made to resemble the Creator of the universe. He made us in His image, and God saw fit to share with us some of His divine attributes. Not all of them. There are some that are not shared Right? We're not all present, for example, just being one of them. But like God, we're able to create. And so just as God created, but you know, a little different from Him, of course, we're able to create. We take, in a limited way, take the things that God has created, all those resources, and we create with those resources. And God's given human beings the ability to think. He's given us the ability to come up with uh, remarkable ideas. And so technology, if you think about it, is just simply the practical result of, of that creative process. And so ultimately, then, God is the author of all technology. Well, that brings me to another question we need to think about, then. Is there a mandate for technology? Is there a mandate for technology? Uh, we just read, we are bearers of God's image. And if bearing... The image of God is what gives us our ability to create. That's God's mandate. His his commanded purpose for human beings is what drives our desire to create then. And so when God created man in His image, He did it with a purpose in mind. He created man to have dominion, rule, control over the whole world that He created. We act as His representatives of His creation. And so, no sooner had God formed man here 
He gave them a job to do. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them, that's mankind, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see there in verse 28, man was to be fruitful and multiply. Man was to fill the earth with more people. It wasn't just supposed to be Adam and Eve living all by themselves in the Garden of Eden. He was to subdue the earth, to rule over it for God's sake. Man was to be a reflector of God's glory, giving the right opinion of God. Theologians, by the way, have sometimes called this God-given purpose for creation uh, the creation mandate. Creation mandate. Author Nancy Piercy writes this, I quote, In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase in your Bible, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music, end quote. So God's basic instruction here to mankind is to develop all those resources in this world that God has created, using our God-given abilities to bring him honor and glory. But there's a problem. Because the Bible doesn't end with Genesis chapter 1, does it? When you come to Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall and the consequences of mankind's sin. Look at Genesis 3, verse 6 in your Bible. Genesis 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6 says this. So when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes, their spiritual eyes, were opened. Both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So what's the first thing they do? They try to cover themselves. They recognized they were sinners, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then God comes along and He gives consequences for sin. There is curse upon the serpent. There's curse upon Eve, but let's read the curse for Adam. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Because this, this applies to even to technology. Our, our whole world, all of creation is cursed as a result of sin. So look at verse 17. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So creation is cursed as a result of sin. And we know from the Bible that soon after man was formed, he disobeyed God. We just read about that. We don't know exactly how long that was, but it couldn't have been very long. Maybe just a couple days after creation. And as a result of that, it altered the relationship that God had with man. Remember, Genesis says God used to come and walk with Adam in the garden. There was this deep communion and fellowship, a a wonderful, perfect relationship. But as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, there's now separation. The relationship was destroyed however having said that the mandate to create remains the mandate to create remains however having said that uh it wouldn't be easy would it to to create things using god's creation would be difficult the earth was no longer a friendly place for human beings I mean, it used to be that Adam and Eve could play with the lions and the bears and the hippos and all those things, and, and none of those creatures would kill them. It, it didn't, there didn't used to be thorns, for example. There didn't used to be pain. There didn't used to be death. None of that stuff existed originally in the Garden of Eden. But now it's no longer easy. Life isn't so easy. The earth isn't a friendly place. In a cursed world, even our technology, the digital world, becomes increasingly difficult. It becomes important as well. The digital technologies in particular help enable human beings to kind of regain maybe a little bit of our lives, supposedly. One of the technologies that's helpful in this fallen world, this sinful world we live in, is medicine. Modern medicine helps us live. Most of us are living a little bit longer these days than maybe people used to. So it's helpful. Helps humans survive and even sometimes flourish in a sin-cursed world. Well, I want us to think deeply, theologically, about technology. I just want to give you Three points. Well, actually, a few points to to consider. And we need to understand that technology is like everything else in this sinful world. It is subject to the curse. Even our technologies are subject to the curse. The things that we we create can, and by the way, they will try to become idols in your heart. So we need to consider three key truths here. Number one, having said all that, We need to understand that technology is a good, God-given gift. It is a good, God-given gift. And you say, well, what is technology? We haven't really defined that yet. Uh, Here's a definition I like. Technology is the creative activity of using tools to shape God's creation for practical purposes. Now, not all definitions include God in that, but that's the definition I like. We as Christians need to use our creative abilities that God has given to us to shape His creation, God's creation, for His purposes. A second theological truth you need to consider is this. Like everything else in creation, technology is subject to the curse. 
So God creates everything good. You can read Genesis 1. God said everything was good. And he gets to the end of his creation. Particularly after creating man, he says, that's very good. But it's subject to the curse as a result of sin. Though intended as a means of honoring God, our technologies often become idols. Number three. It is the human application of that technology that helps us determine if it's being used to honor God or is it going to be used to further human sin. So something that is can be used for good can become bad, depending on your application of it. Do you understand that? Now here's the point. There's inherent good in creating technology. But at the same time, there's inherent evil when you abuse that technology. And sometimes we even assign technology to a godlike status in our lives. That's idolatry. We'll look at some applications of that in a moment. But you say, well, what exactly is an idol anyway? Right? Because you, you may not be like one of those third world countries where they go and they cut down a tree. You know, like the prophet Isaiah says, you know, you cut down a tree, half of it you use to build a fire. You know, you use it for your cooking, you use it to warm yourself, and then the other half you go and carve it and worship it. You probably didn't do that this morning, I assume, most likely. But we, we tend to have idols in different ways. So look what Tim Keller, how he defines an idol. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. End quote. So when people go and jump out of really tall buildings... Why would they do that? It's because they have an idol. And when they lose that idol, whether it's being rich or some relationship or whatever that might be, they think, life is no longer worth living. I've lost my idol. I'm going to destroy myself. And people do that all the time. Farmers in New Zealand do it all the time. Many farmers commit suicide when their, their life... They're finding their identity in their farm, and they find themselves in a bankrupt situation or whatever, blow their brains out or hang themselves. Why'd they do that? Well, they're looking for the wrong identity, number one. They're not finding their identity in Christ, and so they've made an idol out of their farm and their identity. Well, not all technology is evil, but sometimes our technologies actually become enablers of idols. Let me give you one of just one of many examples we could use. A big problem we have today is pornography. Pornography. We are lustful. So here's here's an example. One author put it this way. It's on the screen. The man who makes sex into an idol who is consumed by lust and who has no greater loyalty than following his sexual impulses we use technology to enable and enhance his idolatry. His computer can certainly be used for many good and godly purposes, 
but instead it becomes a tool in the service of the idol that controls him, furthering his bondage, increasing the power of that idol through the viewing of pornography or the pursuit of illicit relationships. His cell phone, useful for communicating with loved ones, now becomes another conduit for a glimpse at the pornography that fuels his lustful desire. His television, a possible means of education, now becomes just another platform perversion to enter his eyes and his soul, end quote. A few examples of technology that are useful can become enablers of our idolatry. We need to be aware of this. So what do we do? Well, again, most of us, avoidance is really not an option. And there are people who try to do that. In fact, I, I'll tell you, when, one day when I was out hunting in the Uruwaras, I came across a gentleman who tries to do this. He was living out in the bush, using all these various huts that we as taxpayers have paid for. <laughs> and he was out there living, trapping possums. And every two weeks, he would bring all of his possums out to the, roll, out to the road, and his brother would pick up the possums, and his brother would give him food. And then he'd go back into the bush. And he would keep doing this. This was his cycle. He didn't want to be with people. He wanted to be by himself, away from the world. So there are people who try to do that. But I had to ask the question, how is he glorifying God? Probably not. Avoidance is not an option, nor is it necessarily the most God-honoring response. So our task here, please understand, is not to avoid technology. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. But we need to evaluate it, though, very carefully, ensure that we're using it with the right motives and for the right goals. So we must understand technology. I want to look at three themes that will help us to understand the effects that technology has upon us. And these come from a man called Neil Postman. Some of you may have heard Neil Postman's name. Uh, he wrote a very famous book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Well, he also wrote an article entitled Five Things We Need to Know About Technological Change. He wrote this back in 2010, by the way, but it's still uh, applicable. But I've taken three of his points I want to share with you. Number one, technology involves both risk and opportunity. It involves both risk and opportunity. I'll give you an example. Most people in our country have cell phones. In fact, as I've traveled to third world countries, even most people in third world countries have cell phones. It's amazing. And so the cell phone, you think about it, it promised instant connectivity, clear signals. It, it promised us a measure of safety while we travel but you think about it, there's places where that is a big fat lie, <laughs> right? We all know, we all, we've all heard those jokes of, of these people, particularly the ones living out in the country, you know, they're standing, you know, they put their picnic table on a little hill, and then they stand on top of their picnic table, and they raise their cell phone up in the air trying to get one bar of connectivity, right? Clear signals, right? Measure of safety, but you know what? With those cell phones, there's no warning labels. They don't, they don't come with warning labels telling you of, of all the interruptions that are going to happen in your life. I just had one a few days ago while I was at teen camp. 
just as I was drifting off to sleep, it was, it was getting close to midnight, just when I wanted to go to sleep and I, I wanted sleep so bad, my cell phone rang. Please. I wanted to throw that thing in the water. Your cell phone doesn't come with those kind of warnings. It doesn't tell you how it's going to disrupt your life. It doesn't tell you how it's going to ring at bad moments or quickly grow out of date, you know. It doesn't tell you about these long contracts you get signed into and then you quickly become uh, disenfranchised with. And even worse, by the way, if what I've read is true, which it seems to be, our cell phones are giving us cancer, particularly brain tumors. But your cell phone didn't come with that warning, didn't it? It, it, it didn't, it's not the same kind of warnings that the, the government's required on cigarette packages. If you inhale this, you will get cancer. None of us had our cell phones with those kind of warnings. So the risks were difficult to see. And this should teach us something. It should teach us to cultivate a, a, a discerning spirit whenever we learn of some new form of technology, we need to ask ourselves, should I use this? And if I do, what's the right motive? What's, what's the goal? How can I use this for God's honor and glory? So there's risk and opportunities in those. Number two, the medium is the message, Neil Postman says. The medium is the message. Think about our long history of human innovation. It, it proves that every technology has consequences to it. And this is because every technology has embedded within it some kind of ideology. Every technology has ideology. And you need to be aware of that. Number three, technology shifts power. Did you know that? Technology shifts power. There's been great shifts in power that have happened throughout the centuries as a result of inventions. One of my favorite ones, and probably the greatest invention ever made, was Gutenberg's movable-type printing press. By the way, did you know that Guten was a Roman Catholic? Guten never intended for his movable-type printing press to be used to print the Scriptures. It almost destroyed his church. He never intended that to happen. But it shifted the balance of power. Praise God for that. God used His invention for His glory and His purposes. But that's what inventions do. And really, it's, it's difficult to predict the various ways in which power is going to shift. But you need to think about it. We're, we're very wise to remember that technology does bring shifts in power. And so it's wise for us to ask questions as we think about technologies. And we can ask, well, whose interests here are being promoted by this particular technology? We can ask, who's going to gain power through that given technology? Who's going to lose power? Someone's going to lose. Someone is going to gain. Let's think of some principles to apply to digital media and social media. And those are two different things, digital media and social media. And you say, well, what is digital media. Some of you might be um, technologically challenged, and that's fine. Let me give you a, a definition. Or what does it include? Digital media includes things like computer programs and software, video, websites, data, databases, 
digital audio that would include MP3 format as well as other formats, and includes ebooks. Ebooks are on the rise, but I'm still thankful they still haven't passed the good old uh, paper and print, which I prefer. And some of you may not be familiar with social media, so you say, well, what is that? Well, again, Wikipedia defines it as a group of Internet-based applications. You'll see they're all up there. I got that little um, whatever you want to call that graph. I got that off Wikipedia, right? So some of you may not even be aware of most of those. I'm not even aware of most of those. But Wikipedia defines it as a group of Internet-based applications that allow the creation exchange of user-generated content. Most of us are familiar with Facebook. Facebook in, in the year 2014, way back in the year 2014, uh, the largest social network was Facebook. In fact, it passed 1 billion users. I said billion. That's 100,000 million users use Facebook. That's by far the largest social network, but there's many, many more, as you can see on the screen. And so the danger is that we just kind of turn our brains off, mindlessly uh, join with the world, copying the world, allowing the world to press us into its mold, and we become careless, we become foolish, and we can even become sinful. And we can even become enslaved. We can become idolaters. So let's consider some principles that will help us to glorify God. Number one. Here's some biblical principles you need to follow in the use of your technologies. All right? Don't be rude. Show respect for other people. I hope you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, which says, Think of others more highly than yourself. But what do we tend to do? We tend to be selfish. We tend to be proud, which is one reason why people love Facebook. Because what's Facebook all about? It's, it's all about me, usually. And so we, we write the stupidest things and put our photos up on Facebook and we tell people what we had for lunch and so forth. Why do we do that? Why, why do most people use Facebook in that way? Because we tend to think more highly of ourselves than other people. But Philippians 2 says, no, you need to think of others more important than yourself. And so if you stop putting yourself first, guess what's going to happen? you're going to be less likely to be rude, more able to think of other people's needs. And so you have to remember, it can become uncomfortable, particularly uh, for elderly people, people particularly born before 1970. It's very difficult for them living in this digital age, in this digital world. It's difficult to communicate with someone who is constantly checking a phone or looking at their text messages or using an iPod or even like this guy here, he's got the Bluetooth earbud in his ear. Man, this freaked me out when those things first came out. Um, at one point in my life, I didn't even know they existed. And I remember walking past a guy who had a Bluetooth earbud, and I was on the other side of him, so I didn't even see this thing. And he's sitting in a chair, and I walked right in front of him, and he starts talking. Whoa, freaked me out. I thought he was talking to me. No, he's talking to somebody else on the other end of the Bluetooth earbud. 
people do that sort of thing a lot of times nowadays, not thinking, well, how is it actually affecting people around me? You, you, and then there's other people, you know, they, they can't take their eyes away from their iPad, even for a minute, to actually look you in the eye as they're speaking. As a whole, our societies become quite rude. We become quite self-centered. Let me encourage you to evaluate yourself according to God's standards. All right? Are you being rude? 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is not rude. So don't allow yourself to use anything in a way that could make someone feel unloved. Number two, don't be excessive. This is one of our problems. We, we become passionate and excessive about our gods, our idols. But Galatians 5 says to exercise self-control. The fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. And that includes your technology. 1 Corinthians 14 says, let all things be done decently and in order. So that includes your technology. It should be done decently and in order. So what I want you to do, my friends, is sometime today, this week, take some time to evaluate your life according to God's Word. Consider how much time you're spending in God's Word and and how much time you're witnessing and evangelizing, serving your family, serving the church. And then, as you think about that, then compare how much time am I spending on my digital devices? Compare the two. And that might tell you what you're worshiping. So don't be excessive. Number three, don't be possessive or too dependent on those digital technologies. After all, the Bible tells us in places like Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's God speaking. God says, no other gods before him. Nothing else comes between you and God. He's number one. Leviticus put it this way. God says, do not turn to idols or make for yourself any god of cast metal. Today we could add in there plastic, right? <laughs> right? A lot of stuff's made plastic today. And God says, why you're not supposed to do that? Why am I not to turn to idols and make ourselves gods, molding ourselves gods? But God says, because I am the Lord, your God. He's the only God. And if he's the only God, then everything else is not God. And if you worship anything else that isn't God, that means you're worshiping false gods. So don't be possessive. Don't be too dependent on that. Number four, don't be secretive. Don't be secretive. One of the things that's destroying us is our secrecy. Our isolation. Our privacy. We make privacy sometimes our idol. I'll give you an example. It used to be when I was a child, in order for me to look at pornography, and by the way, praise God, I didn't because it was so difficult to get a hold of. In order for me to look at pornography, I had to go to the store and I had to ask the person behind the counter, I would like to buy that pornographic magazine which, of course, they would never let me do because I wasn't old enough. But you know what, today, if the statistics are true, which there's a lot of statistics on this, way over half of our teenagers today, before the age of 15, have seen pornography on their computers, cell phones, and so forth. 
and you can do it in privacy. It's free, readily available, and it's destroying us. Think about this. If Jesus went through your internet browsing choices, and by the way, did you know your computers have internet history? In fact, uh, my, my dear wife sometimes will go and look at my internet history, and I don't want to be uh, having just a life of privacy because that, that tends to breed sin in my life. And so I want, I want my wife and my children and others, you, to be aware of what's going on in my life. But, but just think about that. If, if Jesus was actually to come into your home or your, your work devices and look through your internet browsing history, what would he have to say? Well, I got news for you, my friends. Jesus already knows. Jesus has already seen your internet browsing history. He knows what you've been looking at and what you've been reading. And so I ask, would you be embarrassed if he was looking over your shoulder? Which he is. That might be a good test, if you will, of what are we worshiping. Here's some helpful advice. Proverbs 11 says this, Where there is no guidance, the people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. My friends, the worst thing you could do is isolate yourself from God's people. After all, Hebrews 10 says you're to be gathering together with God's people regularly until he comes for the purposes of exhorting one another to love and good works. My wife does this in my life constantly. My children do this as well. They're one of the greatest ones of noticing my hypocrisy. And they tell me when I'm being a hypocrite. My fellow pastors this past week have stepped on my spiritual toes And I can tell you, they're pretty flat right now. And I need that. I need you to step on my spiritual toes. We need each other. God's designed us to be that way. Number two, ask God to help you use the devices in ways that are pleasing to Him. You can do that. It's possible. And then three, joyfully allow someone else to have a password to whatever your digital device is so there's some accountability. If you can't control it, Somebody else needs to help you. And then the last principle I want to look at is number five. Communicate with a purpose. Communicate with a purpose. Whatever you're doing, use it with a God-glorifying purpose. Use those media options that God's given to you to glorify Him. So, whether you're using a blog or Facebook or you're sending texts to someone else, Think, how can I do that in a way that's going to bring God glory and honor? Well, here's another big one that needs to be addressed. How do we handle video games today? I don't know if you realize this, because I'm not a gamer. Uh, a gamer is somebody who's, who's absorbed in the video gaming world. I'm not one of those, but, uh, and you, you, you may not be either, but you need to be aware that this world, many in this world are absorbed in a virtual world. They're totally absorbed in it. It is a massive business. It is a huge business. In fact, as I was reading and studying about this, it is even bigger than the movie industry, believe it or not. And that's why we need to be aware of this, and we need to be able to help each other and others. We need to talk about this matter. And just to show you how big this is, 
what I, what I want to do is kind of compare video games to movies. The fastest movie, let, let's, let's take the fastest movie that reached $1 billion was the movie Avengers. Do you know that it took Avengers 19 days to get to the $1 billion mark? Let's compare that to Grand Theft Auto V. There's a picture of it on the screen there. Grand Theft Auto V reached $1 billion in only three days. Three days compared to 19 for the fastest movie. In, in fact, in the first 24 hours, Grand Theft Auto V made $800 million. Incredible. And it, it's not a good one for people to play. Frankly, I don't think it's one of those ones that Christians should even touch. And I have three main concerns. It has gratuitous violence. It promotes people shooting and killing policemen. It, uh, its depiction of women is horrible. And the glorification of crime is, is basically the whole point of the video game. Just think of the name. What's it called? Grand Theft Auto. So even in the picture, you got a guy breaking a window. Why? Because he's going to steal the car. That's just one example of how it glorifies crime. So let's think, let's, let's think about this. Number one, don't let the game replace reality. Here, here's one of the problems. If, if we're discontent with our life, we try to find something to replace reality. People have done this through alcohol, drugs, various means, right? And so the danger is escapism, or even we become addicted. That's, that's the danger here. So what's the key? Moderation. The key is moderation. Number two, don't let the moral dilemmas of the game become the moral dilemmas of your heart. So again, if this isn't an issue for you, that's fine. But you're going to come across somebody, this is an issue for them. You need to know how to help them. And so... What happens sometimes is games, my understanding is games will give you opportunities to make immoral choices. And you know what God tells us to do? When you're confronted with an immoral choice, what do you do? Well, for example, what if it's immorality? God says, flee immorality. Flee immorality. That's a command. And so sometimes video games will give you a choice to be immoral. What do you do? Flee immorality. Sometimes the game will try to force you in an immoral situation. Well, you know what you need to do? You need to unplug, get rid of the game. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. The very next verse, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. He didn't mean do that literally. You know why we know that's not literal? Because you could lose both eyes and you can still commit adultery in your heart, can't you? Yeah. Sometimes these games are enablers to this kind of sin. So don't let those moral dilemmas of the game become the moral dilemmas of your heart. You might ask, well, the next question we need to address is, how do you recognize idolatry in your life? We have a hard time seeing our idolatry sometimes, which is why I need you, you need me. Ask yourself some questions might be helpful. Number one, do I daydream about this thing, this digital device, this computer video game, or whatever it is? 
What are you daydreaming about? That might reveal what your idol is. Number two, do I do it first before spending time reading and studying the Bible? I know ladies who are addicted to Facebook. You know, they get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and before they do anything else, i got to look at my Facebook page. They're totally addicted. Or there, there's some, some teenagers, you know, they sleep with their cell phones. You know, if the cell phone goes off at 2 o'clock in the morning, i got to look at it. Totally addicted to it. Number three, am I spending more money on that, whatever it is, than what I give to God? How you spend your money will reveal a lot of things. Number four, am I loving God with all? That's the greatest command. And by the way, that includes your mind as well as your heart. Your entire being is to love God. So ask yourself, what am I loving? And if you recognize, well, you know what? I am an idolater. And that's all of us, by the way. We're all idolaters in various ways. Well, what's the solution? Number one is the gospel. Solution is always the gospel. You say, well, what's the gospel? The gospel is good news. What is it the good news of? Well, the Bible says it's the good news of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And what has he done? Well, he humbled himself. He became a man, the Bible says. He lived the perfect life amongst us, which we could have never done. He fulfilled that law for you, died the perfect sacrifice, paid the penalty for your sin, conquered the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin will be gone in your life. Praise God for that. And so because God is just and faithful, you can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't matter what our sin is. Jesus paid the penalty and He conquered the power of that sin in your life for you, which you could have never done on your own. And number two, believe this world is not your home. You're just passing through. This world's temporary. You're just a temporary resident. Just passing through a world that's going to be destroyed one day. Living in a temporary body. That's the way you are. You need to believe that and you need to live that way. Number three, Colossians 3 says, set your affection on things above, not on the earth. Problem is we want to live in a digital world, in a virtual unreality a lot of times. We're addicted to things that supposedly satisfy us, but in reality they do not. They can't. They were never designed to do that. So set your affection, your, your, your love, devotion on something that's going to last. And then number four, I encourage you to find your identity in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. He is your creator. He's your savior. One day he's going to be your judge. He's your friend. He's your king. And he's much more than those things as well. But did you realize the Bible uses a phrase, or a very similar phrase, 160 times? It is a major theme in your New Testament, and it's that phrase, in Christ. Have a read. Take note of that when you're reading your Bibles. In Christ. I'll just give you one example, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have a, have a read of that. Think about that. Your identity must be in 
Christ. It must be. And when it is, you'll have great confidence and assurance. You'll know who you are. You'll know, what is my purpose here? Where am I going when I die? All of that stuff brings great meaning, purpose to life. So find your identity in Christ. Nothing else. Not, not these digital things, not the new technologies, not in friends and anything else, but only in Christ. And when you do, you'll be set free from your idols because He's the one who is worthy of your worship.